We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. On today's podcast, I would love to welcome Angela Hornsby, and Angela is the mother to Malachi. Why don't you just share a little bit about you and Malachi and your interest in family? Sure. My name is Angela Hornsby. Um, I am the proud mom of three children. Um, One is 30, one is 22, and Malachi is 10, going on about 32. (laughs) Uh, Malachi was my, what my great aunt liked to call, my change of life baby. (laughs) Um, You know, I had been through some things medically, and I was a bit surprised um, that I found myself pregnant again. Um, but I was, of course, excited, um, and we, you know, began prenatal care as quickly as as allowed, um, which I was actually surprised um, here in Oklahoma. He's my only baby born here, and so I wasn't able to access prenatal care, like, instantly. Um, they wanted me to wait a few weeks or, or whatever, which honestly troubled me because I, I knew I was advanced maternal age. I was, like, 38. So we waited, um, we got some medical care, things were going well. I went to a perinatal specialist where I got amazing care. Very, again, I was 38, so I just needed the truth, the, the, the cut honest truth, and that's definitely what I got. Things were going well. My last perinatal appointment, we were gonna do an ultrasound um, and find out the gender of my baby. Um, at this point, I was about three months, I knew I would be a single parent um, to Malachi. And so I took my stepmom and my sister and even my niece, who was probably eight with me. We're gonna find out what we're having. And we go in for the ultrasound and you just felt the room, the air kind of come out, you know? And so, we took my niece out of the room and what they he saw initially was the heart defect, right? And a little fluid on his kidneys. And they said, you know, this, this AV canal defect, which means his heart was just one mass. None of the chambers had formed. And they said, it's indicative of Down syndrome, you know, um, and gave me the option to do the amniocentesis. And I'll be completely frank, I knew I was gonna be single, it's 38. One kid was out the house. I didn't know if, if, if I, you, like the heart defect was like, we can have surgery and we'll be fine, but can I raise a child with a, a developmental disability that at that time I didn't even have the words for that. You know what I mean? Like developmental disability was unheard of to me. So all I could do was Google. You know, and I'm looking at parents talking about kids who aren't potty trained till 12 and nonverbal and, you know, like, I didn't see anybody like Malachi or, or, or his peers. I didn't see anybody like them. And I just didn't know if I was, I was prepared for that. I really, really didn't. So I opted for the amnio. 
longest three days of my life. Like I, 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 <laughs> I can't even explain how hard this three days was. And I was, I was on leave from work. So all I could do was sit at home. And so tell you about good health care. So they called me from the from the perinatal specialist. And she told me, you know, we we see that, you know, your your child will have Down syndrome. And when I tell you, I had a hole rolling on the floor, hallelujah, Jesus spoke, but like, oh, Lord, you know, like, I promise, I, I just, I went back nuts for like a good 10, 15 minutes. And when I pulled myself together and went back to the phone, she was still there. And that meant so much to me because then she helped me catch my breath. You know, she told me, you know, sleep on it, think about it. You know, there are options. She never, she never named what options was, but heck, if I'm advanced maternal age, I should know what options are, right? And so it was never pushed, you know, just this is it. And so I cried, I prayed. I was like, I'm not going to do it. I, my mind was made up. I was not going to do this. But I had already told my daughter, who was, nine, 10, you know, people say I tell my kids too much, but you know, it makes them the tough kids they are. So I had already told her we were having this baby. And so then now this baby has Down syndrome, a heart defect, fluid on his kidneys. At this point, I probably didn't even know what kidneys did. Like <laughs> I didn't even put band-aids on children like, oh, you're bleeding, you know? So I was not, I didn't think I had it in me, you know, that kind of strength. So I began to make calls. It's like, oh, you could drive to Texas and, you know, two days and three. And I'm like, what the heck? But I was going to do it. I'm not going to tell. I was going to do it. I literally was in front of my laptop on the sofa. And we were watching a show. I think it was called Private Practice. My daughter's at the table doing her homework. And the storyline was about a young couple with developmental disabilities who had found themselves pregnant. Um, and the mom of the young lady was dead set against it, you know. And this couple explained, you know, we work, we use public transportation. They jumped out and got an apartment. Like, it was like, okay, we did this, you know. And I saw it and Taylor's like, look, mom. I said, mm-hmm, and I just kept up, <laughs> like, that's fiction, right? So literally, after that, the news comes on, and there was a young advocate um, from the Down Syndrome Association here in Oklahoma, and I was just listening, and had I not been listening to the story, I never would have known this young lady had a disability, but she was talking about her rights with social security and how she had a full life and a job and a fiance and she just wanted to live a full and whole life. And so again, my daughter goes, look, mom. And I look up and I close my computer and we decided we could do this, you know? Um, and so we moved forward. Um, so now mind you, I done spent the first three months crying, <laughs> right? So now I've got, you know, three months to say, okay, make a plan, you know, and I begin to do those things and 
go to my appointments and get this nursery together. Now, mind you, I've got a child who's 20 grown and out the house. And so we got this extra bedroom. It's going to be my last kid. So he has to have, you know, the best of everything. And so we're on our way making our plans. Everything is fine. I would say I was about eight weeks out. And I went for a prenatal appointment. And I had promised my daughter, because I'm allergic to lobster, and I discovered it by eating red lobster. So I had given it up. And Taylor loves red lobster. And Malachi in that belly, he was like, mama, we could go. So I said, I promise after this appointment, I think I had went and paid the last on his crib, like everything. So we're going to go to Red Lobster. We're going to go meet this delivery, get his crib together. None of that happened because they are like, his heart rate is dipping, is dropping. It's my daughter and I. She broke through a lot of this with me, you know? And so they said, you know, not Red Lobster. No, not back home, but across the street to be admitted where you will be until you have this baby. Again, single mom, my eldest is out of state at this point. So I didn't really know how we were gonna do this. You know, luckily it was the end of the school year. So Tay was able to be with me a lot. And, you know, we had some good friends who, who were able to help us. And so we lasted about two weeks in the hospital. And they woke me up in the middle of the night and was like, roll over on this side and shake my belly up and roll over on that side, shake my belly up. And they're like, no, we've got to take him. And I just remember saying, he's not ready. And calling my mom. Now, my, I'm close to 40. I like, mama. <laughs> and so literally the, the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is what it took for my mom to get here, who arrived the next day. We go in, we have an emergency C-section, and pretty much what we expected is what we got. You know, he would have to be in the NICU. Um, our plan was to do heart surgery when he was a little bigger and a little stronger, you know. So everything's going according to other than him coming early. Um, with it being the C-section, I had never had one, so I wasn't prepared for not being able to just get up and go to my baby or have him brought to me. So not only, you know, the C-section experience, but the NICU experience, I, I wasn't prepared for it. So I went to go see him, um, and he had like a CPAP on, tubes, and like, I, I like to see was his little belly. You know, I couldn't see my baby. Um, I couldn't really hold him yet. So it was kind of a lackluster experience for me because my, I had the, at this point, I would call it the benefit of prenatal diagnosis. I didn't think so then, but, you know, I, I couldn't imagine having to grieve and the grieve my expectations and to nurture a baby at the same time. So I was able to just kind of, you know, break while I, I could. But anyway, so I went back to my hospital room. The nurses had told me when it's time for his bath, you know, we'll take all of that off and you will get to, you know, see him. So I'm like, eight o'clock, eight o'clock, eight o'clock, right? And the nurses were not there. I hit the button, hit the button, hit the button. So I said, forget it. I'm just going to push this wheelchair because I'm, you know, sore and slow. And I'm going to just scoop down the hall. And they caught me and they're like, no, you know, we'll take you. We're sorry, we've got to get you there. And I'll be honest, when I got there and um, everything was off, I did not see myself. 
I did not see his dad or his siblings. I just saw Down syndrome. You know what I mean? I could not, I couldn't see myself in this baby. And I, I broke down then, you know, and I'll be on, I just looked at the nurse, I ready to go to bed and can I have a sleeping pill? <laughs> I needed a sleeping pill. Um, and I went to sleep. That's what I did. And then I woke up the next morning and put on my big girl pants um, and began the journey of caring for this baby. Um, because no one reminded me he was just going to be a baby. He was going to eat, you know, maybe with a little difficulty and a little more mess because of poor muscle tone. Sleep. He wasn't a crier and poop, you know, like, and smell good. That was my job, you know what I mean? So he was still just a baby. But no one had prepared me for remembering that joy of new motherhood. All I had was anxiety about the stuff that would come later, because it definitely came later. So we stayed in NICU for about three weeks. Wow, 4th of July is coming. He went home on July 3rd. Um, I'm trying to think if he had any equipment. He had a heart monitor. We went home with a heart monitor. So we got this heart monitor, and we're trying to do it. And it's like, as soon as his, his weight gets up, we'll go ahead and do this heart surgery that he has to be prepared for. Well, his weight was not getting up um, because again, poor mus muscle tone. So we decided to opt for an NG tube. Now, mind you, I'm the mom who can't do a Band-Aid, right? So I have to, let me tell you about, you know, the differences in where you receive your care. I know what a, ba a, 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 a training doll for something like an NG tube ought to be now. They gave me a stuffed animal, a teddy bear, some tape and a tube. And that was supposed to teach me to drop a tube down my baby's nose, down his throat into his belly. This teddy bear had no open orifices, none of that. And the doctor told me after, because I wasn't going home, we was just going to sit there because I, I didn't know how to do this. And he told me, this is not a hotel. You have to learn how to do this so you can go home. And so I learned how to do it. And so I could take my baby home. So now I've got this heart monitor, the feeding tube, the car seat, which is still the carrier, a diaper bag, and I'm almost 40. <laughs> it was hard work, you know. And so we get to doing these things and then the appointments begin. And I went to my one and only genetics appointment. Now, mine has been 10 years since I had a baby. So I don't know anything about, you know, the questionnaires for, you know, postpartum. I don't, I just, I'm an honest woman. You ask me something, I'm going to tell you the truth. Are you stressed? Yes. Or, you know, are you not sleeping well? No. You know, so I answer all these questions and the lady is, says, well, you know, if it's too much for you, there are lots of people who specifically want to adopt children with Down syndrome. And it was like, no, you know, that's not what I'm saying to you, but I can't tell you anything else about my genetics appointment.
because by then I just had to shut down. Like, okay, let's just get through this appointment and get my baby out of here before they come take him from me. So we discovered that Malachi is working so hard to eat, even through an NG tube, that he's burning more calories than he's gaining, right? So us waiting for him to get bigger is simply not going to happen. So at three months old, we take him in for open heart surgery. And when I tell you babies are resilient, like that was, cause I used to ask the nurses, I don't know how you do this work with these babies, you know? But when he had open heart surgery and was like two days later raring to go, I would have milked it for everything it had been worth, you know, as an adult. But kids don't, you know, babies don't have that in them. They just want to keep going. So we had open heart surgery. Um, Malachi did well. He recovered well. It should be, and I'm praying that it will be a one and done because I know lots of families who have to have repeated surgeries as their children grow. That is not our plan. Um, so things were going well. He was not walking. Um, he didn't have a lot of words, but, you know, he was running the show and we were learning to, to live on his terms, right? So everything's going well and we made it. Now, mind you, we never had a year where we were not inpatient in the hospital until he was like four or five. Like we would do long stints of inpatient visits. So at this time, you know, we're going, we're regulars at the hospital. Um, and we noticed that Malachi, who at this time is like army crawling and very um, expressive, I would see him see something across the room, go for it, and then stop. So I watched this for a few days. I think he was whining when I was changing his diaper. I could tell he was in some pain. He was gritting his teeth. So I took him to the ER and I told them what was going on. They gave him a popsicle, you know, heck, he's two. Yeah, that popsicle gave him some juice, you know, he was happy. And they, were, they sent us home. They were like, I said, something is wrong. When I went to pick him up to check out, he grit his teeth and dug into my skin. He's in pain, something's wrong. And the doctor's response, well, you know, kids with Down syndrome sometimes grip their teeth. My thing was, he's two, he's had Down syndrome his whole life, he's never grit his teeth. I left, um, but I knew, you know what I mean? Um, so I called his primary doctor, who got us in right away, who trusts me as Malachi's expert, and sent us for blood work. He said, go across the street, get these labs done, we'll figure it out. I lived about maybe 30 minutes from his doctor's office. And so we we're driving home again, trying to get some daggum food. We were like in the Burger King drive through And our nurse says, you know, Angela, where are you? And I'm like, I'm at Burger King. She was like, well, can you pull over for me? And she says, I need for you to go home and get, pack a bag get some things together and take Malachi to the hospital. It looks like leukemia. And I 
I hate to confess my ignorance at this point in my life, but leukemia was like, okay. Because <laughs> to me, cancer is cancer and all of that stuff is other stuff, right? So I'm like, okay. So I go to the hospital, we check him in. It's a Friday. So nothing's happening, right? It's <laughs> they got us in this room. So we're just eating, hanging out, you know, playing. When it got real for me was on Monday morning, they moved our room from a standard hospital room to like a two room suite. Like I literally had a, a bedroom with a chest of drawer, TV that connected to his room that had the hospital bed. And like, and so I said, are we finna be, <laughs> be here for a while? And so then I had to become an oncology specialist, you know? And I think this is when I tuned in. This is when I shook off my own stuff because I can't tell you anything about heart surgery. I was just robotic. They said, do it, I did it. You know what I mean? I had no clue. Show up, I showed up. But this is when I start paying attention and taking notes and not relying on Google, but real, you know, and really informing myself. And thank God I did. We had to do six months of aggressive, aggressive chemotherapy where we would spend three weeks inpatient and come home for a week, which is really just enough time to get the hospital gook off of you in your own shower, clean out the refrigerator, make sure the grass gets cut and get back, you know? And mind you, I had a kid who was in her freshman year of high school trying to, to find her way, you know? It, it was tough. But God, you know, does what he does and does it best. And, you know, we did that. We waited the six months after treatment to officially declare himself in remission. And at this point, at the ripe old age of 10, Malachi is considered a long-term survivor of cancer, you know? And, you know, after that, I think God said, all right, I'm going to give you a break. <laughs> and he's been amazing. We haven't had any major, you know, um, inpatient stints or anything like that. You know, he's in school. He's healthy. You know, COVID did not affect, like, this has been the healthiest year physically that we've had by just focusing in and taking care of us that we've had, you know, since he's been here. So, you know, he's had a journey, but he's doing amazing. Wow. Okay. So, so from two and a half, when he received his diagnosis, mm -hmm. is that what you said? Two and a half. Correct. He was two and a half. So by three and a half, he had been cleared. Three and a half. He had been cleared. Correct. He took his, he spent his uh, third birthday inpatient. He took his first steps in the oncology unit, like we did, it was, everything was there. And by three and a half, he was good to go. Um, and by then he was able to walk because we didn't know why he wasn't walking and those things, but he had, you know, joint pain. So it was just like his life just really, really opened up after that. It really did. And and I guess I may have left out, you know, in to me, it's minor. In between then, we probably had like four ear surgeries, three eye surgeries. <laughs> You know, because he had fluid behind his ears that made life sound like it was underwater. 
and his poor vision. Oh my goodness, you know. Um, but again, we've we've had amazing medical care considering how many doctors we've had to to see in in his lifetime. Um, you know, so he has a, um, a a speaker is what we call it a hearing aid. Um, he has glasses. Um, and, and he understands now that the glasses make life better. The speaker, not so much. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. He has to hear us now, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> More directions given. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love it. Um, so you consider yourself not necessarily a heart defect um, expert. Do you consider yourself a uh, oncology expert? I would say, oh, that's, <laughs> I would say when it comes to children with Down syndrome, I think I have a, a, a very good understanding that number one, our babies are more at risk because of them having Down syndrome. But ironically, our kids recover and respond to the treatment better and have less chances of reoccurrence. Um, our, our, our experience is quite different. I'm just, I've just been blessed. You know, I want to say either right before, I think it was right before diagnosis at the Down Syndrome National Convention, they did a, a panel on cancer in our children. And it was, and I sat in. So, you know, I just, God always just kind of directs my path. Like he's, <laughs> I wish I would pay better attention. Like, why are you making me go to this cancer thing? <laughs> but, you know, I was prepared and I had great supports already in place. Um, I had already, you know, been active and on the board with the Down Syndrome Association. And ironically, my pet, my pet project and my passion was caring for families who were in the hospital. Cause like I said, we were always in the hospital. And so I was literally like washing clothes, taking dinners to families, just any small thing. So when it was our turn, the outpouring of love was like, you know, now I see why this, is, this was my mission, why I had to do this because how important it is to give a family a roll of quarters because you're eating out of vending machines. You know, how important it is to, you know, get mom a good meal because we'll, you know, just, I had no clue what I hoped the work I was doing meant to families until I needed those same graces, you know, offered to me, you know, because that big room I tell you about was, one of the first patients that I visited with Down syndrome, he was in that room. And two, he did not, you know what I mean? So it was, it was all very difficult. It was all very bittersweet. There were some, you know, times when we weren't sure, you know, he, got, he, he became septic in the unit. Um, and PICU, NICU, oncology unit, they're all very different environments and atmospheres, and PICU is very tough for us, um, you know. But when I think about it, because Malachi means messenger of God, you know, we had to develop this baby's story in order to share it because we are definitely not the first. We definitely will not be the last. 
And so we need other families to share their experiences, remember their experiences, whether they went well or not, and support each other. Because that's, I'm telling you, I've said a million times how great our care has been. However, it was other families. I had moms bringing me homemade applesauce, yeah. wouldn't take his medicine. So like mix it in here, like there is no substitute for parent to parent support. So looking back, you would say that that parent to parent piece was essentially what really helped carry you through some of those dark days and scary Absolutely. days. Absolutely. Because even though my mother moved to Oklahoma to help me, even though she loves me dearly and loves my children dearly, she has never had a child with a disability. So there are some things that her heart feels for me as her child, but that she just can't connect with, you know, through lived experience. Where the other mom, on the other hand, says, hey, applesauce worked for me. You know what I mean? There are different, you know, they know that I'm on a diet of chocolate and 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 caf and and pop, you know what I mean? And and so yeah, absolutely. That became my my family. Other parents and to this day are that is definitely my my circle as other parents because like I say as much as my family loves me some things that they just can't, you know, won't get, you know. Yeah. So at three and a half he kind of received his his clean bill of health, let's mm -hmm. say. Talk to me a little bit about what you do now as maybe that advocacy piece with mm -hmm. the developmental disability community and and um, and maybe a little bit about his IEP and some of your involvement with the schools and stuff like that, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Sure. So, you know, um, before cancer, I got involved with the Down Syndrome Association. And I hope it's okay to call names in this instance. But I looked at some moms, you know, like Cindy Gould and Lori Wathen, and, you know, they were like, you know, I was, how are they, how is their life, their career about giving their baby the best life that they, they could possibly have and helping the next mom get it too? That's what I want, right? So I begun to pray. I said, God, I want to go back to work when he's three. I want to work in the disability community. I want a job that's close to home and a job where I could take my baby to work if I needed to. And literally, he still had no hair. Like he was still in treatment. We still had like two months left. I got a call, you know, and OFM was like, we got a spot for you. And I was like, oh, but my baby, I'll bring him with you. <laughs> you weren't specific with God or anything. You either. have to be specific right. in your prayers. You have right. to be intentional, right? So it happened. And that's how my advocacy, like in practice, because I had already done partners in policymaking and was gathering the information, but hadn't begun to use it yet, right? So I began to do the work with OFM, which was so fulfilling to me. Um, got to do a little bit of, of the speaking thing to some other families. And while I was speaking, 
in the NICU, um, OITP, the Oklahoma Infant Transition Program, had a position open, right? <laughs> and they said, hey, would you like it? And I was like, yeah. And I just was not sure, you know, because mind you, I've been home for three years. I prayed and asked God for what I wanted. He gave it to me. And then he gave me another one. And it took another advocate saying, Angela, do not stifle yourself. You could do both. And I did. And for God to give me the job of loving on mamas, that was my job, was to love you through this, this difficult time in your life. There's nothing better than that for me, right? And so I just kind of followed that path. You know, uh, after my time with OFN and OITP, I went on to um, DDCO, the Developmental Disabilities Council of Oklahoma, and spent some time there. Um, where again, outreach, I think outreach and passion and, and empowering women and parents and mothers is, is just always been my, my place in this world, you know? And it took what was supposed to break me to bring me into that place. So um, after my time at OITP, I think I left out, I, I became the intern for the LAND program. Um, the Leadership, Education, and Neurodevelopmental Disabilities. It's a lot of words. <laughs> but that is where I found my freedom, I think. That is where I began to be a part of a conversation outside of other parents and my personal providers. That is when I was brought to the table with other people from every discipline and really got to share because I was the only parent. We had a self-advocate and a family member and the rest were interns from professional disciplines. To really be able to sit at the table and, and say, I see why you would be concerned that this baby has bruising, but before you assume that, yes, those are mom's fingerprints, let's check the, the, the medicine. You know, is, is it, you know, steroids that, that cause easy bruising? And those things never, you know, we just, I think to have that voice at that table empowered me so much. And so mind you, Bubba is like at, it's not East, Woven Life, which was Easter Seals at the time. And I was trying my hardest to keep him <laughs> like literally the year he was supposed to graduate, they added like a pre-K class. So I was like, oh, we could stay one more year, right? Because I was dreading public school. Even though I had all of this exposure to all of this information and I didn't know why I was so afraid, right? But I think it was God preparing me for the fact that it was not going to look the same for me. Because let's be honest, most of my peers are married, white, two-income households, and I don't think anybody lives on my side of town, right? So where you are able to get a para, I could forget it. You know what I mean? Like all of these things that I had heard from these, you know, mystifying IEPs of all the resources and how, how willing they were to, it was like, literally my teachers didn't know how to put together a proper IEP. 
And I had an amazing teacher who loved my son and was willing to figure it out or at least try. The principal was so afraid of me. I, I say, hey, I'm going to pick up Malachi early today. She'd be like, let me check his IEP. <laughs> like she didn't want to do nothing without checking Malachi's IEP. But that is because in my district, half the parents don't even show up for their meetings. And if they do, they nod and sign on the dotted line. Because if I am in a, in a, in a restaurant, right, and everybody else around me is eating hamburgers, they look good enough, okay, I'll have one too, you know, because the waitress comes and says, would you like a burger? Sure. And then I come in and say, but can I see the menu? You're like, like these burgers look good, but I think I want, you know. <laughs> and so it goes to the cook and he's like, I haven't made a steak in years. They were unprepared to give my baby what he deserved, what, he, what he's legally and rightfully you know, allow. And so I took a lot of notes. And I tell you, I faked it until I made it. <laughs> I took my rights law book and I put all these random sticky notes on it with little scribble notes. I didn't know what was on those pages. <laughs> but I needed, like I said, to fake it until I, I, I could figure it out. I never went alone. I took other land interns with me. I took, you know, whoever. I think I took somebody from the DD Council. I took somebody, girl, from the disability lawsuit. <laughs> like I was, I would come with a whole team. I didn't feel the need to do that this last year because I had a very capable teacher. However, in my district, they don't want her no more. She know too. She she's she's holding them to the line, and she won't be back next year. And so it's unfortunate that we go into these districts where as opposed to helping me find the solution to give him, you know, the best education, like they literally try to point us to other schools. Well, wh why don't you go to, to this other school over here? They have a autism program. My son doesn't have autism. And this is where he should be going to school. Like, why are you trying to ship us out of here? but they don't want to deal with the responsibilities. My brother was a para in another, another city, another district. There were five children with disabilities and five paras on campus. Mm -hmm. Now I know that's unheard of, but the fact that we cannot get one capable para um, is upsetting to me because I know Malachi's abilities. Malachi is so smart. So I think it was his, had to be second grade, because first grade, I was shell-shocked. <laughs> I went to go check my baby at the school, and I couldn't believe these little kids. Like, I had never seen Malachi react to people's reaction to him until our first day of public school. When I tell you those kids looked and pointed and did all of those things, which made him, you know, start stimming and humming and rocking even more, right? And when I, I, I probably cried for a few days. And so I didn't want inclusion. I was like, I'm not putting him in the classroom with those other kids, right? So I put him in the self-contained classroom, which had its good, good points and, and its bad points. But it, I know it was not the environment for Bubba. He needed some inclusion, right? 
And these teachers did not want my son in a classroom, which I get. You know, if you've been teaching for 20 plus years, that you didn't come into this thinking you were going to have to teach a child like Malachi. You know, inclusion definitely was not the, the, the deal of the day 20 years ago. However, it is now. And I insisted. And this woman, she didn't fool with my baby and I knew it. And there would go weeks where they weren't in compliance. And because his teacher, his self, uh, self-contained teacher loved him so much, he would call himself protective Malachi and wouldn't send him over there. Then I'd ask him, did you see Miss so-and-so? He'd say no, and then I'd go first get him back in there. So last day of school, it was dark outside, so it was late. <laughs> I remember I get this call from the mainstream teacher. And she called me to apologize and to thank me for insisting that my baby be in her class. She made a confession that I let slide, which basically said that for the whole year, she put Malachi on the computer and let him work independently on the computer while she taught her class. And on the last day of school, she decided to include him in a game. It was like a spelling game. Like I throw you the ball, the word is bat. I throw you the ball, you say B, A, T. Malachi got the first word right. She said, hmm, must've been a fluke. And he was spot on. Even without you engaging him intentionally, he still got everything you were teaching. And so she, and I, and I appreciate the fact that she owned it, that she apologized, that she let my know my baby was everything I told you he was. <laughs> and my hope is that the next time she sees a parent fighting for inclusion, that she could be an advocate for us as well. You know, that's definitely my hope for what goes forward. Yeah, Malachi is always bringing awareness everywhere he goes, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my God, powerful because we are always bringing awareness and then creating those additional advocates, you know, in the community, so. Absolutely, and the only way to do it is to include our children in the community. That's the only way. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. So Angela, I'm going to kind of transition us now. We, we've talked a lot about Malachi and um, all of that, all that he has been through and you've been through as, a, as his mother. Um, I really wanted us to also address today health equity. Uh, I know you said you've done a lot as far as advocacy work in the community. You've done a lot with patient care and supporting families and some of those experiences. And I would absolutely love for your thoughts and a conversation to take place on the issue of health equity. It's an important discussion that I think needs to be had in our community today. And, uh, and I think you have a very strong voice that uh, can be heard. So I would love for us to maybe have this little bit of a dialogue regarding health equity. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate you um, willing to have that, this piece of the conversation. Um, because a lot of people don't um, and are not willing to. And without our voices, our united voices, it's not going to change. Health equity, first we have to define, define health. 
You know what I mean? What is health? Health is mental, spiritual, physical, what you eat, what you breathe, what you see. Access. <laughs> Absolutely. And, 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 and unfortunately, we've become comfortable. And you know how people who grow up in dysfunction think dysfunction is the way it's supposed to be? So when you grow up in an unequal environment, you think that's what it's supposed to be. I expect as a woman suffering with autoimmune disease to have my pain ignored and to be treated like a drug seeker. I expect it. It happened. It still happens. I know women who are still able to, to get access to, to pain management. I can't. You know, I look at the, the therapies, access and equity in the schools. You know, Malachi could not get OTPT and speech in the public school, not over here. And then what you are getting is usually subpar, like to the point where I, I, I had to pull him out of one of his therapies. Like, what are y'all doing? He can color in his classroom. And instead of the school addressing it, they let me pull him out and left her where she was. And I addressed it in the IEP meeting two years consecutively, that these are, are our goals. When I go to the grocery store, you think I can find asparagus down the street from my house? Asparagus. No. Safety. Do I feel safe? Do I feel secure? When we work in the NICU, what do we see? We see some parents treated one way and not just race. I wanna make that very clear because I also work with parents with disabilities. You know what I mean? Like the way that people are marginalized it affects their tangible lives, it affects their psyche, and it affects the generations to come after them. And if I can't have, number one, my story believed and not taken as, oh, she's exaggerating, Oh, that was the one time, it's an isolated incident, it's being blown out of proportion, number one. And number two, for if you do know me enough to know that I'm only gonna tell the truth, to stand with me, because unfortunately, we clearly know that without partnership from somewhere else, the change is not gonna come because we don't have the resources within our communities to make the changes ourselves. Otherwise we'd have it. I guess that was gonna be one of my questions is how, how can those resources be um, accessed or supported or how can we bring those resources without taking the voice of the community away? Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. I'm very glad you asked because um, I've had a whole year. 
what I would like to do, and I'm just going to put it just like that. I want to do it. So if you want to help, help me. <laughs> what I would like to see is for the few members of the disability community advocacy parents at large who are members of marginalized communities, trust me, empower me, trust that what you've taught me stuck. And then give me the tools and the resources to go to my local library and, and have a meeting that teaches the same things that you've been teaching me for years to my community, my way. Don't make me take them to Edmond. You know what I mean? Don't make me order Panera. Let me take them right over here, get some daggum spaghetti. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Some blocks for the kids to play with. Let me, you know, to a local church, but let me help my community in my community. You know what I mean? But it takes resources. It takes you trusting me to, to teach it. You know what I mean? It takes, they may want to, us to pay for the, for the library room. You know, the resources are there. Don't wait on me to ask because I'm probably, you know what I mean? I'll just be honest with you, you know, because I've asked before. So, you know, you don't, but we know the need is there. We know that fiscally, many of these agencies are trying to, trying to find something to do at the end of the year. Why not empower these voiceless communities? We have the talent, we have the information, we just need the resources and the, uh, the backing. I mean, president can't get elected without the backing of some good, good folk, right? I can't get a job with the, without, without some good references. Back me or, you know, I don't want to call, but our other advocates who represent their communities, show us that you support us on our terms and not on you, you know, just on yours. Yeah. I love how you, it's not always about race when we talk about health equity. It's mm -hmm. about those marginalized communities um, mm -hmm. and how we can support those to create that health equity amongst all people as opposed to just when we talk about race or skin colors or things like that. So it's all um, of it that it's about immersing ourselves into the community, yes. the resources for them to serve the communities that mm -hmm. they are a part of. Absolutely, especially living where I, I live in the Northeast Oklahoma City. Gentrification is real, you know what I mean? However, and luckily I don't feel as if my neighborhood is becoming gentrified and that now my voice does not matter. I don't feel like those are the type of neighbors that I'm getting. I feel like luckily I'm blessed to, I just think there's kind of this new awakening anyway, you know what I mean? Just in society as large, at large. So I don't want it to paint this bleak picture. Like I think, you know, all people are uncaring. <laughs> so, but I, like the people who are moving here want to become a part as opposed to change it, which which makes my heart happy. You know, I, I you know, I I think we can do it. I think we can do it. We just have to put our time, our money, and our resources because resources are greater than, than financial. 
into this effort. We have to. The name of our podcast is called We Saved You a Seat. Who are you thinking about as you sit there and say, you know what, I'm saving a seat for, who, who are you saving a seat for? My seat is very specific. Mm-hmm. The seat next to me is for a single mom who lives below the poverty line, is a person of color, and has a child with a disability who has to learn to navigate this world. I I promise I'll save the seat next to me for her and I'll write notes on your pad and circle stuff as key. Like I will help you through this journey, but I am saving the seat for the the mom who is single, doing this by herself with little resources, with even if she has a village, they don't know this journey. That's who I'm saving a seat for. Everything you have said has just been spoken so eloquently and beautiful. And I think you are a voice um, for all families with developmental disabilities. And so I'm excited to be able to share your podcast and your words. So thank you very much for being a part of this today. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.